Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Show 224. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show, man, come on. Two main stories today are a short story and a main story. Tell you what's coming up then. We have the fact article and it's film talk by Dennis Lane. Then we have our first short story which is called Precision Set by L.E. Monocette Jr. Then we have a little fact article, the Hugo Reviews by Andy Thomaswick. Then the main fiction is the fantastic One of Our Bastards is Missing by Paul Cornell. That is today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So straight in, Dennis, with your film talk, sir. A review from the Jacaranda City. Hello again from sunny South Africa. This week... The Zoologer column in The New Scientist focused on the unique life form that is half plant, half animal, Mesodinium chameleon. Of course, that got me thinking about other vegetables that think they're animals. And so, welcome to my review of The Thing from Another World. With the publication of The Things by Peter Watts and the release of the prequel to John Carpenter's 1982 version of The Thing, Now is probably a good time to take another look at the first film adaptation of John W. Campbell Jr.'s Who Goes There, which was first published in the August 1938 edition of Astounding Science Fiction. This is an RKO picture, and I don't know why, 
but I still get a feeling of excitement when that giant transmitter mast on the top of the world appears. Produced in 1951 by Howard Hawks, and directed by Christian Nyby, who had more success as an editor rather than a director. It can be argued that this movie was actually directed by Hawks himself. Stylistically, it certainly seems so, and Hawks admitted to giving Nyby the director's credit so that he would be able to get his Director's Guild membership. The adapted screenplay was by Charles Lederer, who co-wrote the original Ocean's Eleven, His Girl Friday, and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. The film stars Kenneth Toby as Captain Pat Hendry. Toby can also be seen in The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, and It Came From Beneath the Sea. However, I remember him from TV as a child, as in 1957, Toby launched his own television series, The Whirlybirds. Captain Hendry's love interest is provided by Nicky Nicholson, in a brilliantly sparky performance from Margaret Sheridan, for whom this was her major role. Hawks had offered Sheridan the female lead opposite John Wayne in the 1948 film Red River, but she turned it down as she was expecting a child, and she never reached the heights that either Hawks expected or her star quality and acting skills warranted. The main scientist, Dr Carrington, is icily played by Robert Cornthwaite, who was primarily a stage actor but can be seen in The War of the Worlds and Colossus, The Forbin Project. The almost obligatory for that era wisecracking reporter, Ned Scott, is played by Douglas Spencer. Mainly a character actor, he can be seen in This Island Earth and Them, but most memorably as one half of the two-headed Martian in the Twilight Zone episode Mr Dingle the Strong. And finally, The Thing itself is an unrecognisable James Arness who went on to star as Matt Dillon in Gunsmoke on TV. Coming to the story itself, there were two important changes, both, I feel, more due to practical issues rather than any inherent need to change the original. The first is that the action is moved from Antarctica to the North Pole, with the opening scenes taking place in Anchorage, Alaska. The major change, however, is that in this version, the thing cannot shapeshift, as it does in the original story or the subsequent film adaptations. This may have been due to budgetary and technological constraints, and it does alter the premise of the movie. But the ability to spawn thousands or millions of offspring means that the thing retains its ability to overrun planet Earth, which is vital in maintaining the sense of peril to us all, rather than just the few on the research station. Here is a quick run-through of the plot, which should highlight for you the similarities to the other versions and the differences. As I said, the movie opens, after a brilliant burnout title shot, in Anchorage, Alaska, where Captain Pat Hendry is informed that Polar Expedition 6 has recorded some kind of disturbance affecting instruments, and that Dr Carrington believes an aircraft crashed in the vicinity. Hendry flies up with his crew, including some Inuit and a dog sled and dogs. On arrival, Hendry is shown evidence that something, equivalent to 20,000 tonnes of steel, crashed out on the ice. A team go out and find a patch of melted ice and, in an iconic shot, stand above the shadowy shape to estimate its size. The camera pulls back and we realise, along with those on the ice, that we've found a flying saucer! 
They use thermite bombs, which they improbably estimate will take 30 seconds to clear the ice from the ship, but, unfortunately, they manage to blow it up. They find that something has crawled clear to be frozen in the ice, again unfeasibly quickly. They cut out an eight-foot man in a block of ice and take it back to the camp. Captain Hendry refuses to let the scientists defrost it. This is the first intimation that, perhaps, scientists do not always know best. This is a continuing theme throughout the movie that plays on some of the anti-scientist views of the time, six years after the first atom bomb, as compared to the view that American servicemen and sensibly cautious scientists should make the decisions. There's a storm that has resulted in radio interference and everything is grounded, so Hendry leaves the block of ice as it is until he can get orders from Anchorage. A guard is placed, and one of them is spooked by the sight of the alien, covering it with a blanket, not knowing that it's an electric blanket. The ice melts and the dogs go crazy. The thing is alive, and the guard shoots it, but it escapes into the snow to have a fight with the dogs. An arm is found, and when investigated, the scientists discover that it has no arterial structure, no nerve endings, and under a microscope, it appears to be a vegetable. We are then treated to one of Dr. Carrington's logical leaps. He states that the creature's brain's development was not handicapped by emotional or sexual factors, and that it is the human superior in every way. They also discover some tiny seed pods under the nails and observe that the hand starts to move once it has ingested the dog's blood that covered it. While Hendry's men search for the thing, Dr. Carrington continually takes its side, describing it as a stranger in a strange land, a quote from Exodus, ten years before Heinlein's novel. There are a series of scenes where the scientists keep what they are learning a secret from Hendry, including the fact that Carrington is growing a batch of seeds feeding them plasma from the infirmary. There's a split in the scientists. Some want to destroy it and the seedlings, but Carrington keeps a tight grip on them. But after a dog is found with its blood drained and two scientists, Olsen and Arbuck, are discovered hanging upside down from the beams in the greenhouse with their throats cut, the truth comes out. The thing breaks in again and the airmen burn it with kerosene, but it dives out of the window and they plan to go after it with more kerosene. However, one of the scientists suggests that a high voltage could burn it away. The thing cuts the fuel to the heaters and everyone congregates in the generator room, while the trap is being set up with fence wire on the floor and ceiling of the passageway. However, Dr. Carrington, contrary as usual, turns off the generator and tries to talk to the thing, getting violently brushed aside. The generator is switched back on, and the plan works. The electricity burns it up. Soon after, radio contact is restored and Scotty gets a warning out to the reporters in Anchorage who are waiting to hear what is going on. The Thing from Another World was released in April 1951 and, by the end of that year, had become the year's 46th biggest earner, beating all other science fiction films released that year, including The Day the Earth Stood Still and When Worlds Collide. In 2001, the film was deemed culturally significant by the United States Library of Congress, and was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. What, for me, makes this movie stand out are the characterizations. There's the growing relationship between Hendry and Nicky Nicholson. There are the sarcastic one-liners between Hendry's crew and Scotty. 
There's the conflict between the scientists who only look at the science and don't consider its implications with the military and the other group of scientists. All in all, it's an enjoyable 87 minutes, which rightfully deserves a place as one of the most influential movies of the 1950s. And so, I'll finish with the words of the reporter, Scotty. I bring you a warning. Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world. Tell this to everybody, wherever they are. Watch the skies. Everywhere. Keep looking. Keep watching the skies. There you go. Look out for another little article by Dennis as well. Dennis, come on, get them, get them busily, get them done. Thank you very much, sir. Next up is a little short story, Precision Set by L.E. Modisette Jr. Give you a little heads up by L.E. Modisette Jr. We've played one story before by L.E. Modisette. He has 55 books to his name. Wow, <laughs> 55 novels. He's been, amongst other things, delivery boy, lifeguard, unpaid disc jockey, U.S. Navy pilot, the, the man has done everything. Then he kind of went into politics and everything like that. The guy has been a storm in his life. What a great career he's had. He's actually, this story came out 2001 on spec, the spring edition, that was edited by Jenna Snyder. It was also came out in Viewpoints Critical Selected Stories, published by Tor. He's actually as well got a new story in our good friend John Joseph Adams. John Joseph Adams has got a new anthology coming out, Under the Moons of Mars. These are those stories all based on Edgar Rice Burroughs' stories. Well, Ellie Modisette Jr. has got a one in there as well. So, And I'm trying to do a little kind of little get-together again with John when that new anthology comes out as well. So we'll try and get another story by Mr. Adams and play that as well. This story is narrated by Mike Boris. Mike sent over this story and straight away I just said to Mike, this is kind of, and, and Mike is kind of, Mike's a professional narrator. Do you know what I mean? This is what he kind of does for a living there now. But it just upped his game so much. It's just like subtle as well. You know, you can just kind of, it just sounds just brilliant to be quite honest. Mike, this is stunning. You know what I mean? One more work off you, sir. Never mind about getting paid, man. Don't worry about that. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Precision set. He calls himself Charlie Cable. That is or is not his name. At the moment, he sits in the third row at the sports pavilion, watching the gymnasts warm up. Although the pavilion is full and tickets are so scarce that there are no scalpers plying the plaza outside, each seat beside him is vacant. The price he has paid for all three seats would have bought him a suite at the local Ritz Singleton for a season. He wears a classic blue wool blazer and gray slacks, with a white silk shirt and black leather boots. He's the only man in the section who wears a jacket, and the only one who wears no jewelry. The glow from the slow glass panels increases, indirect but bright enough to provide perfect lighting for the competitors and clear illumination of the various gymnastic apparatus on the pavilion floor. The four-centimeter beam that replaced the older four-inch beam a generation earlier, the vaulting horse, the bars, and the floor exercise square. For a moment, Charlie concentrates. Say the Basque team has a new technique for kinesthetics. Nordems are still using enhanced physical patterning. He lets his concentration lapse, and the clear words drop into background noise, not soothing, but only vaguely disturbing. 
The fingers of his right hand slip across his forehead, not quite touching or brushing back the short but otherwise nondescript brown hair streaked with silver. His eyes are a deep hazel. On the pavilion floor, the warm-ups continue, each girl-woman moving effortlessly, gracefully, and precisely. The judges fiddle with their laser-measuring calibration equipment. The audience juggles programs and personal computoculars. The slightest of sounds alerts him. A pattern is memorized, if a self-programming recognition of precise sonic patterns can be accurately called memorization. And he forces himself to turn his gaze toward the aisle slowly, as if in idle curiosity, although his curiosity, comparatively new as it is, is seldom idle. She is slender, black-haired, and of an indeterminate age beyond youth and before obvious physical degeneration. She wears a cream-colored cotton blouse, hand-tailored, and a dark skirt of real wool and a turquoise silk scarf. Charlie watches her for a time, sensing rather than actually seeing the blackness behind the china-blue eyes. Her low-cut, light-black leather-laced shoes touch each step with unvarying precision, as if each foot understands independently where it should go. Charlie nods. Each foot is programmed to react kinesthetically to the situation. He raises a hand as she looks in his direction. Her eyes meet his, and he points to the seat beside him. With a sad smile, she shakes her head. Charlie points again. This time she walks in front of a pseudo-family, a boy, a girl, and two parents wearing unisex clothes and hair, and eases into the seat on his left. She does not look at the chair, yet settles into it perfectly. Are you sure? Charlie is sure. He bought the tickets for privacy and for her. This is the fifth competition he has attended. I'm Charlie Cable. You could have sold these seats. I wasn't interested in selling them. Charlie concentrates on the narrow beam where a delicate redhead practices a double flip with a full twist, followed by a single with a half twist to a handstand. Is that Maureen Denisha? he asks, knowing full well that the redhead is Denisha, having seen her in the four previous sessions. The redhead? Yes, she's very precise. The woman's voice is soft, yet as clearly defined as her steps, posture, and grooming. Aren't they all? Of course, that's why... She does not finish the sentence, but he knows what she means. Both look toward the precision measuring equipment used by the judges. Do you really want to torture yourself more? He asks gently. Her head snaps toward him. Hazel eyes meet blue eyes. How would you know? Why else would you be here? Obviously someone let you in without a ticket, and that means... You are too perceptive. No, Charlie says truthfully, for lying remains difficult with his literal background. He knows her patterns through observation, not perception. He stands up. Shall we go? She sighs. I suppose you're right. That remains to be seen. He offers a hand that she does not need. She takes it, but puts no weight upon him as she rises, gracefully as always. They ease past the pseudo-family, and both parents glare, either at their obviously conservative and wealthy attire, or their cavalier departure even before the competition begins. "'What do you do?' she asks, halfway up the aisle to the exit landing. "'I'm a consultant. I receive a considerable stipend for past services. I also design advanced data nets, communications equipment.' They pause at the top of the aisle as the slow glass panels above the audience dim in preparation for the competition proper. You haven't asked what I do, she says. Doesn't it matter? I wouldn't define you just by what you do. 
Charlie provides an easy smile, although it is a mannerism he has had to learn. What do you do? I also receive a stipend for past services. I teach athletic history at the university, part-time. As they exit the plaza, Charlie's eyes scan the scattered crowd, studying those outside until he sees three girls, all prepubescent, all bearing tablets and styli, all clearly hoping for a sight of Sorelli or Denisha, or perhaps even Yukira. They wait, despite the lateness of the hour, and he stops in front of them and smiles. I've been called away, ladies. Would you like my tickets? They're third row center off the floor exercise. He extends the plastic-coated oblongs with the holograms that are difficult, if not impossible, to counterfeit. Thanks! The tallest girl, smooth-skinned as all youth are, but still awkward, takes the tickets. Charlie nods, watching as they scramble toward the doorway, clutching the tickets as though they were made of gold, when gold was itself valuable. That was cruel, the woman says. In a way, her observation of the effect of his gift pleases him, but not totally, for he does not engage in wanton cruelty. Where are we going? Can you stand a long drive, several hours? If I must, she smiles. Why should I trust you? I'm eminently trustworthy. I have too much to lose by not being trustworthy. Consultants, you know, only survive through their client's trust. I'm sure, but does that translate into personal relations? I hope so. His vehicle is deep-coated gunmetal gray and bears the antenna which indicates its ties to the National Automated Road System. He opens the door for her. I didn't know anyone still did that. My programming is doubtless dated. They only use the highway for a time before he turns off and takes a side road, which winds through hillier and increasingly wooded land, generally obscure in details in the darkness. Beside him, the woman rests. Dozes, perhaps. Still later, as the sky is graying into dawn, he turns up a dirt road. He stops beside a small house, gray, late twentieth century modern with excessive glass, overlooking a lake. After opening her door, he pulls a small but heavy pack from the car. If this is yours, I'd appreciate the chance to... Charlie purses his lips, another learned mannerism, and opens the unlocked front door. It's the first door on the left. He uses the upstairs facilities and then returns and waits by the vehicle. She returns before long. This is yours. It's lovely. It is mine. Consultants do have a choice of locales in this electronic age. He offers his arm. She ignores the offer by touching his elbow. I'd like you to look at the lake from the wall down there. He points to the path which circles through the lawn and past a garden filled with bright yellow marigolds and crimson petunias. They walk downhill, their steps precise, for very different reasons. Old as the stones are, the wall has been maintained. Charlie sits on a precisely reset stone wall and places the small pack by his feet. He looks down at the lake. I told you my name was Charlie Cable. I'm a man who doesn't exist. You look real enough to me. She remains standing. Your name is Silvira. You were the first cyber-kinesthetic gymnast. You won the gold medal in the 2012 Olympics and every event in the world's for the two years before and after the Olympics. Silvira died a long time ago. I'm a man who doesn't exist. Neither one of us makes much sense. Her tone was bitter. I should not have come. You retired when the new techniques became widespread. Silvira was obsolete even when she won the Olympics. 
Obsolete refers to machines. You saw Denisha. You saw the judges with their lasers that measure deviations from the horizontal and vertical by micromillimeters. Is that human? Charlie gestures toward the lake, so still in the dawn that the trees on the far shore appear to grow in two directions. The water reflects the trees perfectly, but it is still water. Don't you ever say anything directly? It's hard for someone who doesn't exist. What do you want? Would you sit down? She sits and they watch the lake. As slowly the faintest of breezes ripple the water, and the upside-down pictures of the trees and cloud-speckled sky shivers, wavers, and vanishes. Only a single set of trees remain above the cold blue water. It is a pretty place. Silvera's eyes shift toward Charlie. Do you know what a data lattice looks like? Silvera frowns. Or an enhanced if-then decision tree? Charlie smiles. They are black and white. Incredibly detailed black and white pieces that form pyramids or chains. For all the graphic arts presentations that show artificial intelligence in colors, it's not that way. He bends down and opens his pack. From it, he removes two headsets and a black box with two input leads. He plugs each headset into the box and hands one to her. No! Silvera stands, handing the headset back to him with a harshly precise motion. These aren't implantation sets. They're just impression sets. Look at the leads. You should know the difference. Charlie waits. Why? I want to give you two impressions. This isn't big enough for an impression set. Technology does advance. His voice was dry. Besides, Silvira is dead. She laughs raggedly, but it is a laugh. This time she takes the headset. Charlie puts on his set, then touches a stud on the black box. He looks at the lake, concentrating on its blueness, and upon the dark green of the tall pines, their brown trunks, and the puffy white clouds overhead. Upon the scent of damp air pine and hard texture of the stone under his hand, the feel of the silk against his skin. He touches her hand and lets her sense the wonder of the warmth of her skin and fingers against his. Then he looks back at the lake for a long time, marveling at its colors and how it changes from moment to moment. Then he touches the second stud on the box, calling up past memories. Cold lines of black and white bites, chains of black and white, black and white, black and white, white and black, black and black. No sense, no smells, no colors. The chains go on endlessly, looping, flashing, but always black and white, white and black. He touches the stud and removes the headset. Silently, Silvera removes hers. Your... He nods. The man who no longer exists. The AI they plugged into a brain-drained killer named... His name doesn't matter. I'm Charlie Cable, or I'm not. She shivers. Do all AIs feel so... so cold? No, only the ones who have to become human. How can you know what color is until you see it? She takes his hand. Thank you. The darkness behind the china blue eyes is lighter, although it will never totally lift. Wait a moment. He sets the black box on the ground beside the stone wall. With a quick motion, his booted heel crunches through the plastic and circuitry. Then he replaces the pieces in the pack and seals it, setting it carefully on the wall. His name is or is not Charlie Cable. Her name is or is not Silvira. There are no cyberkinesthetic gymnasts and no former killers slash ethically enhanced computers. 
A couple walks along the lake shore, their arms entwined. Neither exists. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Ellie Morissette Juniors, and a big thank you to Mike as well. Mike, fantastic. Come on, sir, get some more, get some more work there. I'll try and get some more stories as well, but off young Mr. Ellie Morissette Jr., that would be fantastic. Next up is our Andy Thomaswick with the Hugo Reviews. Andy, which book now, Squire? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of the Hugo Review. This time I'll be covering Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell by Susanna Clark, the winner for 2005. Let me start by saying that whether you enjoy this book will largely be dependent on what you expect to get out of it. If you expect an epic magic tale, the likes of which you would find in a Harry Potter or Forgotten Realms book, you best look elsewhere. If you're expecting a discourse on the intricacies of 18th century English social life with a sprinkling of magic thrown in to mix things up, you're more on the right track. That being said, I loved this book. The imagination, wit, and humor were enough to draw me in, and the occasional flashes of absolutely brilliant writing were enough to keep me through the 800 pages. Another thing you should not expect is an easy read. The pacing of the story is somewhat uneven, and the book is littered with almost 200 footnotes. Yes, I said footnotes, in a novel, and I think that they are some of the best parts of the book. The footnotes give a semi-detailed historical view of the magical world represented in the book, and the notes are some of the most ingenious pieces of imaginative fiction in their own right. I have never read a singular book that has such a well-established world. The footnotes just make me want to dive into the stories told in them, even though many were about the two titular characters themselves. They are the two modern-day practical magicians, but in this case, modern-day means back in the Napoleonic era. Gilbert Norell sees his art as a sort of arcane academic study, and surrounds himself with books of magic which he buries himself in for hours upon hours a day. He is accidentally drawn out by a society of theoretical magicians, and, upon showing them his prowess, scurries off to London to lend his services to the government. To prove himself, he restores the life of the wife of a cabinet minister, by entering into a Faustian contract for her soul with the man with the thistle-down hair. I don't know why someone with Norrell's background would ever trust a person whose hair can only be described as thistle-down, but apparently he really wanted to help the British government. Anyway, eventually Jonathan Strange, a young up-and-coming aristocrat, is thrown into magic after having a strange prophecy read to him by a traveling fortune teller. He makes his way to study under Norrell, and the pair quickly become the most sought-after duo in England. The cast of surrounding characters, both imagined and real, is both large and diverse. Their actions have almost as large an impact on the story's plot as the two men who command mystical forces. But then the plot is not the strongest point of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. It is memorable, but the pacing is rather sporadic. There are about a hundred pages describing Strange's time with the Duke of Wellington during the Peninsular Campaign that are absolutely brilliant. There are also dozens of pages of seemingly less important drudgeries that go on throughout the book. If you're willing to get through the dull parts, the exciting ones are quite worth it. What's even more worth pulling yourself through is the way the magic is described. These magicians don't go about waving wands and shouting archaic words at one another. Magic in the book is both wondrous and unique. I have never heard anything described quite the way Clark describes the magic in the world, and I also have a very hard time explaining how exactly it is that she does it. One word of caution on the magic. Some of the book's incantations are commonplace. Mirrors as doors, speaking stones, and resurrection are common magical motifs that are seen in this book. 
but some of the spells cast, especially by Strange, are a most ingenious way to solve a particular problem that's confronting him. There are incantations such as a full-size English fleet made entirely out of rain, but my personal favorite has to be this. At one point, Strange picks up a piece of Spain's geography and places it in America. The way Clark describes both how he does this and the reactions to the various parties involved are pure brilliance. The rest of the writing style is well in line with the magical descriptions. Clark is an excellent writer and an expert of pastiche. If any of you, like me, have no idea what that word means, it is a literary, musical, or artistic piece consisting wholly or chiefly of motifs or techniques borrowed from one or more sources. What this means is simply that Clark is incredibly adept at mimicking other writers. Principally among the professional reviewers who are more versed in this literary world than I, Jane Austen seems to be a main point of comparison. Having read only a single Austen novel, I can see the similarities. But my problem with Austen was always that the end goals of all the characters seemed so mundane. As it is most likely impossible to make the Napoleonic Wars less interesting than a Victorian-era girl's marriage prospects, Clark does not have to fear treading too far down Austen's path. But the dry humor that goes along with so much of English society and novels set in that period is well represented here. Don't let the lack of a standard Victorian love story scare you away, though, even if you love Sense and Sensibility. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is an amazing book and well worth the effort if you know what to expect going into it. In a few hundred years, this book might very well find a place in the literary canon next to its stylistic and intellectual forebears. It certainly deserves its spot there. But that's it for this edition of the Hugo Review. Next time I'll be covering another fantasy book, The Paladin of Souls by Lois McMaster Bejold. Now go out there and keep in mind that someday all the stones around you will be able to talk. Do you know what I mean? That was one of the books I st- No, actually, it was in audio format, and I never got the end of it because it was... I don't know if it's just the size put us off. So, but if anyone's, you know, read that as well, drop us an, an email, see what you think, and I'll pass them on to Andy. Andy, thank you so much, sir. Next up is The Main Fiction. One of our bastards. What a title that is, man. That's just fantastic. Anyways, Paul hits the nail on the head straight away with that. One of our bastards is missing by Paul Cornell. It comes from, this actual story comes from the Jonathan Hamilton series of his, which kind of had in it the Catherine Drew in 2008, and the next story in it actually, which is out now, and you can get it on Paul's site, is the Copenhagen Interpretation, came out in 2011, like I say, I'll put a link on. It was actually a Hugo nominee in 2009. It came out, this story we're going to listen to now, one of our bastards, was in the Solaris Book of New Science Fiction, Volume 3. Came out in that, edited by George Mann. George Mann's a little bit of a like, secret dark horse. I'll have to try and get him on, because he's behind a lot of things that we kind of, you know, we, we take for granted, are, are good stories and good editions of books. George Mann's there, so I'm going to try and hunt George down. It was also picked up by the year's best SF 15 by David G. Hartwell. Then it came out in the year's best science fiction 27 by Gardner Doswas. And then the mammoth book of best new science fiction 23 by Gardner Doswas as well. Everyone knows this is kind of a cracking story. So I hope you've enjoyed it as well. It is narrated by Jack Calvary. Jack has got, a, 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 again, one of these kind of great voices. It's just like... Oh, I just, it's hard to describe. I mean, I, I think Jack's done a couple of stories for Starship Sofa now there as well. And he's always actually on, Jack's always comes along these events that were hold online as well. 
But Jack's got this story. It's a bit like a almost a Richard Burton kind of gravelly voice. Do you know what I mean? That kind of deepness there. So, Jack, amazing voice. And thank you so much for coming along to these shows we're doing. That's lovely to see you there. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. One of our bastards is missing. Written by Paul Cornell. Read by Jack Calverley. To get to Earth from the edge of the solar system, depending on the time of year and the position of the planets, you need to pass through at least Poland, Prussia and Turkey. And you'd probably get stamps in your passport from a few of the other great powers. Then, as you get closer to the world, you arrive at a point in the continually shifting carriage space over the countries, where this complexity has to give way or fail. And so you arrive in the blissful lubrication of neutral orbital territory. From there, it's especially clear that no country is whole unto itself. There are yearning gaps between parts of each state as they stretch across the solar system. There is no congruent territory. The countries continue in balance with each other like a fine but eccentric mechanism. Pent up. All that political energy dealt with through eternal circular motion. The maps that represent this can be displayed on a screen, but they're much more suited to mental contemplation. They're beautiful. They're made to be beautiful, doing their own small part to see that their beauty never ends. If you looked down on that world of countries, onto the pink of glorious old Greater Britain, that land of green squares and dark forest and carriage contrails, and then you naturally avoided looking directly at the golden splendour of London, your gaze might fall on the Thames Valley, on the country houses and mansions and hunting estates that letter the banks with their names of the great, on one particular estate, an enormous winged square of a house with its own grouse-shooting horizons and mazes and herb-gardens and markers that indicate it also sprawls into folded interior expanses. Today, that estate, seen from such a height, would be adorned with informational banners that could be seen from orbit, and tall pleasure cruisers could be observed docked beside military boats on the river and carriages of all kinds would be cluttering the gravel of its circular drives and swarming in the sky overhead. A detachment of horse guards could be spotted, stood at ready at the perimeter. Today, you'd need much more than a passport to get inside that maze of information and privilege, because today was a royal wedding. That vision, from the point of view of someone looking down upon him, was what was at the back of Hamilton's mind. But now he was watching the princess. Her chestnut hair had been knotted high on her head, bearing her neck, a fashion which Hamilton appreciated for its defiance of the French, and an official function too. Though that gesture wouldn't have been Liz's alone, but would have been calculated in the Warrens of Whitehall. She wore white, which had made a smile come to Hamilton's lips when he'd first seen it in the cathedral this morning, in this gigantic function room, with its high arch ceiling, 
in which massed dignitaries and ambassadors and dress uniforms orbited from table to table. She was the sun about which everything turned, even the king in the far distance, at a table on a rise with old men from the rest of Europe, was no competition for his daughter this afternoon. This was the reception, where Elizabeth, escorted by members of the corps of heralds, would carelessly and entirely precisely move from group to group, giving exactly the right amount of charm to every one of the great powers, briefed to keep the balance going as everyone like she and Hamilton did every day. Everyone like the two of them. That was a useless thought, and he cuffed it aside. Her gaze had settled on Hamilton's table precisely once. A little smile, and then away again, as not approved by Whitehall. He tried to stop watching her after that, but his carefully random table, with diplomatic corps functionaries to his left and right, had left him cold. Hamilton had grown tired of pretending to be charming. "'It's a marriage of convenience,' said a voice beside him. It was Lord Carney. He was wearing open cuffs that bloomed from his silk sleeves, a big collar and no tie. His long hair was unfastened. He had retained his rings. Hamilton considered his reply for a moment, then opted for silence. He met Carney's gaze with a suggestion in his heart that surely his lordship might find some other table to perch at, perhaps one where he had friends. What do you reckon? Hamilton stood, with the intention of walking away. But Carney stood too, and stopped him just as they'd got out of earshot of the table. The man smelled like a Turkish sweet shop. He affected a mode of speech beneath his standing. This is what I do. I probe. I provoke. I poke. And when I'm in the room, it's all too obvious when people are looking at someone else. The broad grin stayed on his face. Hamilton found a deserted table and sat down again, furious at himself. Carney settled beside him and gestured away from Princess Elizabeth towards her new husband with his neat beard and his row of medals on the breast of his Svenska Adelsfarnen uniform. He was talking with the papal ambassador, doubtless discussing getting Liz to Rome as soon as possible for a great show to be made of this match between the Protestant and the papist. If Prince Bertil was also pretending to be charming... Hamilton admitted that he was making a better job of it. Yeah, jammy fucker, my thoughts exactly. Still, I'm on a promise with a couple of members of his staff, so it's, uh, swings and roundabouts. Carney clicked his tongue and wagged his finger as a Swedish serving maid ran past, and she curtsied a quick smile at him. I do understand, you know. All our relationships are informed by the, uh, balance... And the horror of it is that we can all conceive of a world where this isn't so. Hamilton pursed his lips and chose his next words carefully. Is that why you are how you are, 
your lordship? Course it is. Maids, lady companions, youngest sisters. It's a catalogue of incompleteness. I'm allowed to love only in ways which don't disrupt the balance. For me to commit myself or, heaven forbid, to marry would require such deep thought at the highest levels that, by the time the heralds had worked it through, well, I'd have tired of the lady. Story of us all, eh? Nowhere for the pressure to go. If only I could see an alternative. Hamilton had decided that, having shown the corner of his cards, the man had taken care to move back to the fringes of treason once more. It was part of his role as an agent provocateur, and Hamilton knew it, but that didn't mean he had to take this. Do you have any further point, your lordship? Oh, I'm just getting... The room gasped. Hamilton was up out of his seat, and had taken a step towards Elizabeth. His gun hand had grabbed into the air to his right, where his .66-millimeter Webley Corsair sat in a knot of space and had swung it ready to fire at nothing. There stood the princess, looking about herself in shock, dress uniforms, bearded men all around her, left, right, up, down, Hamilton couldn't see anything for her to be shocked at, and nothing near her, nothing around her. She was already stepping back, her hands in the air, gesturing at a gap. What had been there? Everyone was looking there. What? He looked to the others like him. Almost all of them were in the same sort of posture he was, balked at picking a target. The papal envoy stepped forward and cried out, a man was standing there, and he has vanished. Havoc. Everybody was shouting. A weapon, a weapon. But there was no weapon that Hamilton knew of that could have done that. Made a man, whoever it had been, blink out of existence. Groups of bodyguards in dress uniforms or diplomatic black tie leapt up, encircling their charges. Ladies started screaming. A nightmare of the balance collapsing all around them. That hysteria when everyone was in the same place and things didn't go exactly as all these vast powers expected. A Bavarian princeling bellowed he needed no such protection and made to rush to the princess's side. Hamilton stepped into his way and accidentally shouldered him to the floor as he put himself right up beside Elizabeth and her husband. "'We're walking to that door,' he said. "'Now!' Bertil and Elizabeth nodded and marched with fixed smiles on their faces, Bertil turning and holding back with a gesture the Swedish forces that were moving in from all directions. Hamilton's fellows fell in all around them and swept the party across the hall through that door, and down a servant's corridor, as lifeguards came bundling into the room behind them, causing more noise and more reactions, and damn it, Hamilton hoped he wouldn't hear the discharge of some hidden... He did not. The door was closed and barred behind them, another good chap doing the right thing. 
Hamilton has sometimes distantly wished for an organization to guard those who needed it. But for that, the world would have to be different in ways beyond even Carney's artificial speculations. He and his brother officers would have their independence cropped if that was so. And he lived through his independence. It was the root of the duty that meant he would place himself in harm's way for Elizabeth's husband. He had no more thoughts on the subject. I know very little, said Elizabeth as she walked, her voice careful as always, except when it hadn't been. I think the man was with one of the groups of foreign dignitaries. He looked Prussian, said Bertil. We were talking to Prussians. He just vanished into thin air right in front of me. Into a fold, said Bertil. It can't have been, she said. The room would have been mapped and mapped. She looked to Hamilton for confirmation. He nodded. They got to the library. Hamilton marched in and secured it. They put the happy couple at the centre of it, locked it up, and called everything into the embroidery. The embroidery chaps were busy, swiftly prioritising. But no, nothing was happening in the great chamber they'd left. The panic had swelled and then subsided into shouts, exhibitionist faintings, because who these days wore a corset they didn't have, hidden depths, glasses crashing, yelled demands. No one else had vanished. No Spanish infantryman had materialised out of thin air. Bertil walked to the shelves, folded his hands behind his back, and began bravely and ostentatiously browsing. Elizabeth sat down and fanned herself, and smiled for all Hamilton's fellows, and finally, quickly for Hamilton himself. They waited. The embroidery told them they had a visitor coming. A wall of books slid aside, and in walked a figure that made all of them turn and salute. The Queen Mother, still in mourning black, her train racing to catch up with her. She came straight to Hamilton, and the others all turned to listen, and from now on, thanks to this obvious favour, they would regard Hamilton as the ranking officer. He was glad of it. We will continue, she said. We will not regard this as an embarrassment, and therefore it will not be. The ballroom was prepared for the dance. We are moving there early. Elizabeth, Bertil, off you go. You two gentlemen in front of them, the rest of you behind. You will be laughing as you enter the ballroom, as if this were the most enormous joke. A silly and typically English eccentric misunderstanding. Elizabeth nodded, took Bertil by the arm. The Queen Mother intercepted Hamilton as he moved to join them. No, Major Hamilton, you will go and talk to Technical. You will find another explanation for what happened. Another explanation, Your Royal Highness? Indeed, she said. It must not be what they are saying it is. Here we are, sir. Lieutenant Matthew Parks was with the technical corps of Hamilton's own regiment, the 4th Dragoons. He and his men were, incongruously, in the dark of the buttery that had been set aside for their equipment, also in their dress uniforms. 
From here, they were in charge of the sensor net that blanketed the house and grounds down to Newtonian units of space, reaching out for miles in every direction. Park's people had been the first to arrive here days ago and would be the last to leave. He was pointing at a screen on which was frozen the intelligent image of a burly man in a black tie. Princess Elizabeth almost entirely obscured behind him. Know who he is? Hamilton had placed the guest list in his mental index and had checked it as each group had entered the hall. He was relieved to recognize the man. He was as down to earth as it was possible to be. He was in the Prussian party, not announced. One of six diplomat placings on their list. Built like his muscles have been grown for security, and that's how he moved around the room. Didn't let anyone chat to him. He nods when his embroidery talks to him, which would mean he's new at this, only. only the man had a look about him that Hamilton recognized. No, he's just very confident, ostentatious even. So you're sure he didn't walk into some sort of fold? Here's a contour map. Parks flipped up an overlay on the image that showed the tortured underpinnings of space time in the room. There were little sinks and bundles all over the place where various Britons had weapons stowed, and various foreigners would have had them stowed had they wished to create a diplomatic incident. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The corner where Elizabeth had been standing showed only the force of gravity under her dear feet. We do take care, you know, sir. I'm sure you do, Matty. Let's see it then. Parks flipped back to the clear screen. He touched it and the image changed. Hamilton watched as the man vanished. One moment he was there, then he was not. And Elizabeth was reacting, a sudden jerk of her posture. Hamilton 
often struggled with technical matters. Uh, what's the frame rate of this thing? There is none, sir. It's a continual taking of real image, right down to single Newton intervals of time. That's as far as physics goes. Sir, we've been listening to what everyone's saying all afternoon. And what are they saying, Matty? That what's happened is graceful impossibility. Gracefully impossible. The first thing that had come into Hamilton's mind when the Queen Mother had mentioned the possibility was the memory of a political cartoon. It was the Prime Minister from a few years ago, standing at the dispatch box, staring in shock at his empty hand, which should presumably have contained some papers. The caption had read, Say what you like about Mr Patel. He carries himself correct for his title. He's about to present his graceful apologies for the impossible loss of all his policies. Every child knew that Newton had coined the phrase gracefully impossible after he'd spent the day in his garden observing the progress of a very small worm across the surface of an apple. It referred to what, according to the great man's thinking about the very small, could, and presumably did, sometimes happen. Things popping in and out of existence, when God, for some unfathomable reason, started or stopped looking at them. Some Frenchman had insisted that it was actually about whether people were looking, but that was the French for you. Through the centuries, there had been a few documented cases which seemed to fit the bill. Hamilton had always been distantly entertained to read about such in the inside page of his newspaper plate. He'd always assumed it could happen. But here? Now? During a state occasion? Hamilton went back into the great hall, now empty of all but a group of lifeguards and those like him, individuals taken from several different regiments, all of whom had responsibilities similar to his, and a few of whom he'd worked with in the field. He checked in with them. They had all noted the Prussian, indeed with the ruthless air the man had had about him, and the bulk of his musculature, he had been at the forefront of many of their internal indices of threat. Hamilton found the place where the vanishing had happened, moved aside a couple of boffins, and, against their protestations, went to stand in the exact spot, which felt like anywhere else did, and which set off none of his internal alarms, real or intuitive. He looked to where Liz had been standing, in the corner behind the Prussian. His expression darkened. The man who'd vanished had effectively been shielding the princess from the room, between her and every line of sight. He'd been where a bodyguard would have been if he'd become aware of someone taking a shot. But that was ridiculous. The Prussian hadn't rushed in to save her. He'd been standing there, looking around, and anyone in that hall with some strange new weapon concealed on their person wouldn't have taken the shot then. They'd have waited for him to move. Hamilton shook his head, angry with himself. There was a gap here, something that went beyond the obvious. He let the boffins get back to their work and headed for the ballroom. The band had started the music, and the vast chamber was packed with people, the dance floor a whirl of waltzing figures. They were deliberate 
in their courses. The only laughter was forced laughter. No matter that some half-miracle might have occurred, dance cards had been circulated amongst the minds of the great powers, so those dancers would be danced, and minor royalty matched, and whispers exchanged in precise confidentiality, because everyone was brave and everyone was determined and would be seen to be so. And so the balance went on. But the tension had increased a notch. The weight of the balance could be felt in this room, on the surface, on every brow. The Queen Mother sat at high table with courtiers to her left and right, receiving visitors with a grand blessing smile on her face, daring everyone to regard the last hour as anything but a dream. Hamilton walked the room, looking around like he was looking at a battle, like it was happening rather than perhaps waiting to happen, whatever it was. He watched his opposite numbers from all the great powers waltzing slowly around their own people and spiralling off from time to time to orbit his own. The ratio of uniformed to the sort of embassy thug it was difficult to imagine fitting into the diplomatic bag was about three to one for all the nations bar two. The French had, of course, sent commissars, who all dressed the same when outsiders were present, but followed a Byzantine internal rank system, and the Vatican's people were all men and women of the cloth and their assistants. As he made his way through that particular party, which was scattering, intercepting and colliding with all the other nationalities, as if in the explosion of a shaped charge, he started to hear it. The conversations were all about what had happened. The Vatican representatives were talking about a sacred presence. The details were already spiralling. There had been a light and a great voice, had nobody else heard, and people were agreeing. Hamilton wasn't a diplomat, and he knew better than to take on trouble not in his own line. But he didn't like what he was hearing. The Catholics had only come to terms with impossible grace a couple of decades ago, when a papal bull went out announcing that John the Sixteenth thought that the concept had merit, but that further scientific study was required. But now they'd got behind it, as in all things they were behind it. So what would this say to them, that the divine had looked down on this wedding, approved of it, and plucked someone away from it? No, not just someone. Prussian military. A Protestant from a nation that had sometimes protested that various Swedish territories would be far better off within their own jurisdiction. Hamilton stopped himself speculating. Guessing at such things would only make him hesitate if his guesses turned out to be untrue. Hamilton had a vague but certain grasp of what his god was like. He thought it was possible that he might decide to give the nod to a marriage at court, but in a way which might upset the balance between nations that was divinely ordained, that was the centre of all good works. No, Hamilton was certain now. The divine be damned. This wasn't the numinous at play. This was enemy action. He circled the room until he found the Prussians. They were raging, an ambassador poking at a British courtier, 
demanding something, probably that an investigation be launched immediately. And beside that Prussian stood several more, diplomatic and military, all convincingly frightened and furious, certain this was a British plot. But behind them there, in the social place where Hamilton habitually looked, there were some of the vanished man's fellow big lads, the other five from that diplomatic pouch. The Prussians, uniquely in Europe, kept up an actual organisation for the sort of thing Hamilton and his ilk did on the Never Never. The Garde du Corps had begun as a regiment similar to the lifeguards, but these days it was said they weren't even issued with uniforms. They wouldn't be on anyone's dance cards. They weren't stalking the room now, and all right, that was understandable. They were hanging back to protect their chaps. But they weren't doing much of that either. They didn't look angry, or worried for their comrade, or for their own skins. Hamilton took a step back to let a pretty noble couple desperately waltz between him and the Prussians, wanting to keep his position as a privileged observer. They looked like they were waiting, on edge. They just wanted to get out of here. Was the guard really that callous? They'd lost a man in mysterious circumstances, and they weren't themselves agitating to get back into that room and yell his name, but were just waiting to move on. He looked for another moment, remembering the faces, then moved on himself. He found another table of Prussians, the good sort, not Order of the Black Eagle, but hussars. They were in uniform and had been drinking and were furiously declaring in Hohenzollern German that if they weren't allowed access to the records of what had happened, well, then it must be... They didn't like to say what it must be. Hamilton plucked a glass from a table and wandered over to join them, careful to take a wide and unsteady course around a lady whose train had developed some sort of fault and wasn't moving fast enough to keep pace with her feet. He flopped down in chair next to one of the Prussians, a captain by his lapels, which were virtual in the way the Prussians liked, to implicitly suggest that they had been in combat more recently than the other great powers, and so had a swift turnover of brevet ranks, decided by merit. Hello, he said. The group fell silent and bristled at him. Hamilton blinked at them. Where's Humph? Humph? What say the good major? The hussar captain spoke North Sea Pigeon, but with a clear accent. Hamilton would be able to understand him. He didn't want to reveal that he spoke perfect German, albeit with a Bavarian accent. Big chap. Big, big chap. Say go. He carefully swore in Dutch, shaking his head, not understanding. Which you settle them? Settle? They looked amongst each other, and Hamilton could feel the affront. A couple of them even put their good hands to their waists, where the space was folded that no longer contained their pistols and thin swords. But the captain glared at them and they relented, a burst of Hohenzollern German about this so-called mystery of their mate vanishing, and how, being in the guard, he had obviously been abducted for his secrets. Hamilton waved his hands. No swords, good chap, no name. 
he won three times to me behind the back she he raised his voice a notch behind the back she excellent chap he won he stuck out his ring finger offering the winnings in credit to be passed from skin to skin he mentally retracted the other options of what could be detailed here and blanked it he could always make a drunken show of trying to find it seek to settle for such a good chap they didn't believe him or trust him nobody reached out to touch his finger but he learned a great deal in their german conversation in the 10 minutes that followed while he loudly struggled to communicate with the increasingly annoyed captain who couldn't bring himself to directly insult a member of the british military by asking him to go away the vanished man's name was helmut sandals the name suggested swedish origins to his family but that was typical continental back and forth he might have been a good chap now he'd gone but he hadn't been liked sandals had had a look in his eye when he'd walked past stout fellows who'd actually fought battles he'd spoken up in anger when valiant hussars had expressed the military's traditional views concerning those running the government the country and the world hamilton found himself sharing the soldier's expression of distaste this had been someone who assumed that loyalty was an opinion he raised a hand in pax gave up trying with the captain and left the table walking away he heard the hussars moving on with their conversation starting to express some crude opinions about the princess he didn't break stride into his mind unbidden came the memories of what had been a small miracle of a kind but one that only he and she had been witness to hamilton had been at home on leave having been abroad for a few weeks serving out of uniform as always at times like that when he should have been at rest he'd been fired up for no good reason unable to sleep miserable prone to tears in secret when a favorite song had come on the theatricals in his muse flat it always took 3 days for him once he was home to find out what direction he was meant to be pointing then he would set off that way and pop back to barracks one night for half a pint and then he'd be fine he would enjoy day 4 and onwards and was known to be something approximating human from there on in Three day leaves were hell. He tried not to use them as leaves, but would find himself some task, hopefully an official one, if one of the handful of officers who brokered his services could be so entreated. Those officers were sensitive to such requests now. But that leave, three years ago, had been two weeks off. He'd come home a day before, so he was no use to anyone. He'd taken a broom and was pushing accumulated grey goo out of the carriage park alongside his apartment and into the drains. She'd appeared in a sound of crashing and collapse as her horse staggered sideways and hit the wall of the mews, then fell. Her two friends were galloping after her, their horses healthy, and someone built like Hamilton was running to help. but none of them were going to be in time to catch her 
and he was. It had turned out that the horse had missed an inoculation against minuscule poisoning. Its body was a terrible mess, random mechanisms developing out of its flanks and dying with that terrifying smell. In the moments when Hamilton had held her in his arms and had had to round on the man running in and had imposed his authority with a look and had not been thrown down and away. Instead, she'd raised her hands and called that she was all right and had insisted on looking to and at the horse, pulling off her glove and putting her hand to its neck and trying to fight the bloody things directly. But even with her command of information, it had been too late, and the horse had died in a mess. She'd been bloody angry, and then at the emergency scene that had started to develop around Hamilton's front door, with police carriages swooping in and the sound of running boots, until she'd waved it all away and declared that it had been her favourite horse, a wonderful horse, a great friend since childhood, but it was just a bloody horse, and all she needed was a sit-down and if this kind military gentleman would oblige. And he had. He'd obliged her again when they'd met in Denmark, and they'd danced at a ball, held on an ice floe, a carpet of mechanism wood reacting every moment to the weight of their feet and the forces underlying them, and the aurora had shone in the sky. It was all right in Denmark for Elizabeth to have one dance with a commoner. Hamilton had got back to the table where his regiment were dining, and had silenced the laughter and the calls, and thus saved them for the barracks. He had drunk too much. His batman at the time had prevented him from going to see Elizabeth as she was escorted from the floor at the end of her dance card by a boy who was somewhere in line for the Danish throne. But she had seen Hamilton the next night, in private, a privacy that would have taken a great effort on her part, and after they had talked for several hours and shared some more wine, she had shown him great favour. So, is God in the details? Someone was walking beside Hamilton. It was a Jesuit, mid-thirties, Dark hair kept over her collar. She had a scar down one side of her face and an odd eye as a result. Minuscule blade by the look. A member of the Society of Jesus would never allow her face to be restructured. That would be vanity. But she was beautiful. Hamilton straightened up, giving this woman's musculature and bearing and all the history those things suggested the respect they deserved. Or the devil... Yes, interesting the saying goes both ways, isn't it? My name is Mother Valentine. I'm part of the Society's campaign for effective love. Well, Hamilton raised an eyebrow, I'm in favour of love being... Don't waste our time. You know what I am. Yes, I do. And you know I'm the same. And I was waiting until we were out of earshot. Which we are now to have this conversation. They stopped together. Valentine moved her mouth close to Hamilton's ear. I have just been told that the Holy Father is eager to declare what happened here to be a potential miracle. Certain parties are sure that our Black Eagle Man will be found magically transplanted to distant parts, perhaps Berlin, as a sign against Prussian meddling. If he is, 
The Kaiser will have him gently shot and will never hear. You're probably right. What do you think happened? I don't think miracles happen near our kind. Hamilton realized he was looking absurdly hurt at her, and that she could see it, and was quietly absorbing that information for use in a couple of decades, if ever. He was glad when a message came over the embroidery, asking him to attend to the Queen Mother in the buttery, and to bring his new friend. The Queen Mother stood in the buttery, her not taking a chair having obviously made Parks and his people even more nervous than they would have been. She nodded to Valentine. Monsignor, I must inform you, we've had an official approach from the Holy See. They regard the hall here as a possible site of miraculous apparition. Then my opinion on a subject is irrelevant. You should be addressing... The ambassador, indeed, but here you are. You are aware of what was asked of us? I suspect the cardinals will have sought a complete record of the moment of the apparition, or in this case, the vanishing. That would only be the work of a moment in the case of such an uh, observed chamber. It would, but it's what happens next that concerns me. The procedure is that the chamber must then be sealed and left unobserved until the cardinals can see for themselves to minimize any effect human observers may have on the process of divine revelation. Hamilton frowned. Are we likely to? God is communicating using a physical method, so we may, said Valentine. "'depending on one's credulity concerning minuscule physics. "'Or one's credulity concerning international politics,' said the Queen Mother. "'Monsignor, it is always our first and most powerful inclination "'when another nation asks us for something to say no. "'All nations feel that way. "'All nations know the others do. "'But now here is a request, "'one that concerns matters right at the heart of the balance.' That is, in the end, about deactivating security. It could be said to come not from another nation, but from God. It is therefore difficult to deny this request. We find ourselves distrusting that difficulty. It makes us want to deny it all the more. You speak for His Royal Highness? The Queen Mother gave a cough that might have been a laugh. "'Just as you speak for our Lord.' "'Valentine smiled and inclined her head. "'I would have thought, Your Royal Highness, "'that it would be obvious to any of the great powers that, "'given the celebrations, "'it would take you a long time to gather the Prime Minister "'and those many other courtiers "'with whom you would want to consult on such a difficult matter. "'Correct. Good. It will take three hours.' You may go. Valentine walked out with Hamilton. I'm going to go and mix with my own for a while, she said. Listen to who's saying what. I'm surprised you wear your hair long. She looked sharply at him. Why? You enjoy putting your head on the block. She giggled. Which surprised Hamilton, and for just a moment made him wish he was Lord Carney. But then, 
there was a certain small darkness about another priest he knew. I'm just betting, she said in a whisper, that by the end of the day this will all be over, and someone will be dead. Hamilton went back into the ballroom. He found he had a picture in his head now. Something had swum up from somewhere inside him, from a place he had learned to trust and never interrogate as to its reasons. That jerking motion Elizabeth had made at the moment Sandals had vanished. He had an emotional feeling about that image. What was it? It had been like seeing her shot. A motion that looked like it had come from beyond her muscles. Something Elizabeth had not been in control of. It wasn't like her to not be in control. It felt dangerous. Would anyone else see it that way? He doubted it. So was he about to do the sudden, terrible thing that his body was taking him in the direction of doing? He killed the thought and just did it. He went to the herald who carried the tablet with the dance cards on it, and leaned on him with the Queen Mother's favour, which had popped up on his ring finger the moment he'd thought of it. The herald considered the sensation of the fingertip on the back of his hand for a moment, then handed Hamilton the tablet. Hamilton realised that he had no clue of the havoc he was about to cause. So he glanced at the list of Elizabeth's forthcoming dances and struck off a random Frenchman. He scrawled his own signature with a touch, then handed the plate back. The herald looked at him like the breath of death had passed under his nose. Hamilton had to wait three dances before his name came up. A balaclava, an entrée grave, that choice must have taken a while, unless some herald had been waiting all his life for a chance at the French. A hornpipe for the sailors, including Bertil, to much applause. And then, thank the deuce, a straightforward waltz. Elizabeth had been waiting out those last three, so he met her at her table. Maid servants kept their expressions stoic. A couple of Liz's companions looked positively scared. Hamilton knew how they felt. He could feel every important eye looking in his direction. Elizabeth took his arm and gave it a little squeeze. What's Grandma up to, Johnny? It's what I'm up to. She looked alarmed. They formed up with the other dancers. Hamilton was very aware of her gloves. The mechanism fabric that covered her left hand held off the urgent demand of his hand, his own need to touch her. But no, that wouldn't tell him anything. That was just his certainty that to know her had been to know her. That was not where he would find the truth here. The band started up. The dance began. Hamilton didn't access any guidelines in his mind. He felt his feet move where they would. He was outside orders, acting on a hunch. He was like a man dancing around the edge of a volcano. Do you remember the day we met? He asked, when he was certain they couldn't be overheard. At least, not by the other dancers. Of course I do. My poor San Andreas. Your flat in Hood Muse. Do you remember what I said to you that day? 
when nobody else was with us. What you agreed to, those passionate words that could bring this whole charade crashing down. He kept his expression light, his tone so gentle and wry, that Liz would always play along and fling a little stone back at him, knowing he meant nothing more than he could mean, that he was letting off steam through a joke. All they had been was based on the certainty expressed in that. It was an entirely British way to do things. It was, as Carney had said, about lives shaped entirely by the balance. But this woman, with the room revolving around the two of them, was suddenly appalled, insulted, her face a picture of what she was absolutely certain she should feel. I don't know what you mean, or even if I did, I don't think. Hamilton's nostrils flared. He was lost now, if he was wrong. He had one tiny ledge for Liz to grasp, if he was. But he would fall. For duty, then. He took his hand from Princess Elizabeth's waist and grabbed her chin, his fingers digging up into the flesh. The whole room cried out in horror. He had a moment before they would shoot him. Yes, he felt it. Or he thought he did. He thought he did enough. He grabbed the floor and ripped with all his might. Princess Elizabeth's face burst off and landed on the floor. Blood flew. He drew his gun and pumped two shots into the mass of flesh and mechanism as it twisted and blew a stream of defensive acid that discoloured the marble. He spun back to find the woman without a face lunging at him, her eyes white in the mass of red muscle, mechanism pus billowing into the gaps. She was aiming a hair knife at his throat, doubtless with enough mechanism to bring instant death, or something worse. Hamilton thought of Liz as he broke her arm. He enjoyed the scream. He wanted to bellow for where the real Liz was as he slammed the imposter down onto the floor, and he was dragged from her in one motion as a dozen men grabbed him. He caught a glimpse of Bertil, horrified, but not at Hamilton. It was a terror they shared for her safety. Hamilton suddenly felt like a traitor again. He yelled out the words he'd had in mind since he'd put his name down for the dance. They replaced her years ago. Years ago, at the Mews. There were screams, cries that we were all undone. There came the sound of two shots from the direction of the Vatican group, and Hamilton looked over to see Valentine standing over the corpse of a junior official. Their gaze met. She understood why he'd shouted that. Another man leapt up at a Vatican table behind her and turned to run, and she turned and shot him twice in the chest, his body spinning backward over a table. Hamilton ran with the rout. He used the crowds of dignitaries and their retinues, all roaring and competing and stampeding for safety, to hide himself. He made himself look like a man lost, Agony on his face, his eyes closed. He was ignoring all the urgent cries from his embroidery. He covertly acknowledged something directly from the Queen Mother. He stumbled through the door of the buttery. Parks looked round. Thank God you're here. We've been trying to call. The Queen Mother's office are urgently asking you to come in. 
Never mind that now. Come with me on Her Royal Highness's orders. Parks grabbed the pods from his ears and got up. What on earth? Hamilton shot him through the right knee. Parks screamed and fell. Every technician in the room leapt up. Hamilton bellowed at them to sit down or they'd get the same. He shoved his foot into the back of Parks's injured leg. Listen here, Matty. You know how hard it's going to get. You're not the sort to think your duty's worth it. How much did they pay you? For how long? He was still yelling at the man on the ground as the lifeguards burst in and put a gun to everyone's head, his own included. The Queen Mother entered a minute later and changed that situation to the extent of letting Hamilton go free. She looked carefully at Parks, who was still screaming for pity, and aimed a precise little kick into his disintegrated kneecap. Then she turned to the technicians. Your minds will be stripped down and rebuilt, if you're lucky, to see who was in on it. She looked back to Hamilton as they started to be led from the room. What you said in the ballroom obviously isn't the case. No. When you take him apart, Hamilton nodded to Parks, you'll find he tampered with the contour map. They used sandals as the cover for substituting Her Royal Highness. They knew she was going to move around the room in a predetermined way. With Parks' help, they set up an open-ended fold in that corner. The expense is staggering. The energy required. There'll be no Christmas tree for the Kaiser this year. Sandals deliberately stepped into the fold and vanished in a very public way. And at that moment, they made the switch. Took Her Royal Highness into the fold too, covered by the visual disturbance of Sandal's progress and by old-fashioned sleight of hand. Propped up by the Prussians' people in the Vatican. Instead of a British bride influencing the Swedish court, there'd be a cuckoo from Berlin. Well played, Wilhelm. Worth that Christmas tree. I'll wager the unit are still in the fold, not knowing anything about the outside world, waiting for the room to be sealed off with pious care so they can climb out and extract themselves. They obviously have supplies for several days. Do you think my granddaughter is still alive? Hamilton pursed his lips. There are Prussian yachts on the river. They're staying on for the season. I think they'd want the bonus of taking the princess back for interrogation. That's the plan, Parks yelled. Please! Give him some anaesthetic, said the Queen Mother. Then she turned back to Hamilton. The balance will be kept. To give him his due, Cousin Wilhelm was acting within it. There will be no diplomatic incident. The Prussians will be able to write off sandals and any others as rogues. We will, of course, cooperate. The Black Eagle traditionally carry only that knowledge they need for their mission, and will order themselves to die before giving us orders of battle or any other strategic information. But the intelligence from Parks and any others will give us some small power of potential shame over the Prussians in future months. The Vatican will be bending over backwards for us for some time to come. She took his hand and he felt the favour on his ring finger impressed with some notes that probably flattered him. He'd read them later. Major, we will have the fold opened. You will enter it. Save Elizabeth. Kill them all. 
They got him a squad of fellow officers, four of them. They met in a trophy room and sorted out how they'd go and what the rules of engagement would be once they got there. Substitutes for Parks and his crew had been found from the few sappers present. Parks had told them that those inside the fold had left a minuscule aerial trailing, but that messages were only to be passed down it in emergencies. No such communications had been sent. They were not aware of the world outside their bolt hole. Hamilton felt nothing but disgust for the bought man, but he knew that such men told the truth under pressure, especially when they knew the fine detail of what could be done to them. The false Liz had begun to be picked apart. Her real name would take a long time to discover. She had a maze of intersecting selves inside her head. She must have been as big an investment as the fold. The court physicians who had examined her had been as horrified by what had been done to her as by what she was. That baffled Hamilton. People like the duplicate had power to be who they liked, but that power was bought at the cost of damage to the balance of their own souls. What were nations, after all, but a lot of souls who knew who they were and how they liked to live? To be as uncertain as the substitute Liz was to be lost and to endanger others. It went beyond treachery. It was living mixed metaphor. It was as if she had insinuated herself into the cogs of the balance, her puppet strings wrapping around the arteries which supplied hearts and minds. They gathered in the empty dining room, in their dress uniforms. The dinner things had not been cleared away. Nothing had been done. The party had been well and truly crashed. The representatives of the great powers would have vanished back to their embassies and yachts. Mother Valentine would be rooting out the details of who had been paid what inside her party. Excommunications post-mortem would be issued, and those traitors would burn in hell. He thought of Liz, and took his gun from the air beside him. One of the sappers put a device on the floor, and set a timer, saluted, and withdrew. Up the green jackets, said one of the men behind him, and a couple of the others mentioned their own regiments. Hamilton felt a swell of fear and emotion. The counter clicked to zero, and the hole in the world opened in front of them, and they ran into it. There was nobody immediately inside, a floor and curved ceiling of universal boundary material. It wrapped light around it in rainbows that always gave tunnels like this a slightly pantomime feel. It was like the entrance to St. Nicholas's Cave, or, of course, the vortex sighted upon death, the ladder to the hereafter. Hamilton got that familiar taste in his mouth, a pure adrenaline jolt of fear, not the restlessness of combat deferred, but the sensation one got in other universes of being too far from home, cut off from the godhead. There was gravity. The Prussians certainly had spent some money. The party made their way forward. They stepped gently on the edge of the universe. From around the corner of the short tunnel there were sounds. The other four looked to Hamilton. He took a couple of gentle steps forward, grateful for the softness of his dress uniform shoes. 
he could hear Elizabeth's voice. Not her words, not from here. She was angry, but engaged. Not defiant in the face of torture. Reasoning with them. A smile passed his lips for a moment. They'd have had a lot of that. It told him there was no alert, not yet. It was almost impossible to get sensors close to the edge of a fold. This lot must have stood on guard for a couple of hours, heard no alarm from their friends outside, and then relaxed. They'd have been on the clock, waiting for the time when they would poke their heads out. Hamilton bet there was a man meant to be on guard, but that Liz had pulled him into the conversation too. He could imagine her face just round that corner, one eye always toward the exit, maybe a couple of buttons undone, claiming it was the heat and excitement. She had a hair knife too, but it would do her no good to use it on just one of them. He estimated the distance. He counted the other voices. Three, four. There was a deeper tone in German, not the pigeon the other three had been speaking. That would be him. Sandals. He didn't sound like he was part of that conversation. He was angry, ordering, perhaps just back from sleep, wondering what the hell. Hamilton stopped all thoughts of Liz. He looked to the others, and they understood they were going to go, and go now, trip the alarms, and use the emergency against the enemy. He nodded. They leapt around the corner, ready for targets. They expected the blaring horn. They rode it, finding their targets surprised, bodies reacting, reaching for weapons that were, in a couple of cases, a reach away amongst the kitchen, crates, tinned foods. Hamilton had made himself know he was going to see Liz, so he didn't react to her. He looked past her. He ducked, cried out, as an automatic set off by the alarm chopped up the man who had been running beside him, the green jacket, gone in a burst of red, meat all over the cave. Hamilton reeled, stayed up, tried to pin a target, to left and right ahead, men were falling, flying, two shots in each body, and he was moving too slowly, stumbling, vulnerable. One man got off a shot into the ceiling, and then fell, pinned twice, exploding. Every one of the Prussians gone, but... He found his target. Sandals. With Elizabeth right in front of him, covering every bit of his body. He had a gun pushed into her neck. He wasn't looking at his three dead comrades. The three men who were with Hamilton moved forward, slowly, their gun hands visible, their weapons pointing down. They were looking to Hamilton again. He hadn't lowered his gun. He had his target. He was aiming right at Sandals and the princess. There was silence. Liz made eye contact. She had indeed undone those buttons. She was calm. Well, she began, this is very... Sandals muttered something and she was quiet again. Silence. Sandals laughed, not unpleasantly. Soulful eyes were looking at them from that square face of his, a smile turning the corner of his mouth. He shared the irony that Hamilton had often found in people of their profession. This was not the awkward absurdity that the soldiers had described. Hamilton realized that he was looking at an alternative. This man was a professional at the same things 
Hamilton did in the margins of his life. It was the strangeness of the alternative that had alienated the military men. Hamilton was fascinated by him. I don't know why I did this, said Sandals, indicating Elizabeth with a sway of his head. Reflex. Hamilton nodded to him. They each knew all the other did. Perhaps you needed a moment? She's a very pretty girl to be wasted on a Swede. Hamilton could feel Liz not looking at him. It's not a waste, he said gently. And you'll refer to Her Royal Highness by her title. No offence meant, and none taken. But we're in the presence, not in barracks. I wish I were. I think we all agree there. I won't lay down my weapon. Hamilton didn't do his fellows the disservice of looking to them for confirmation. This isn't an execution. Sandals looks satisfied. Seal this tunnel afterwards. That should be all we require for passage. Not to Berlin, I presume. No, said Sandals. To entirely the opposite. Hamilton nodded. Well then, Sandals stepped aside from Elizabeth. Hamilton lowered his weapon, and the others readied theirs. It wouldn't be done to aim straight at Sandals. He had his own weapon at hip height. He would bring it up, and they would cut him down as he moved. But Elizabeth hadn't moved. She was pushing back her hair, as if wanting to say something to him before leaving, but lost for the right words. Hamilton, suddenly aware of how unlikely that was, started to say something, but Liz had put a hand to Sandal's cheek. Hamilton saw the fine silver between her fingers. Sandals fell to the ground, thrashing, hoarsely yelling as he deliberately and precisely, as his nervous system was ordering him to, bit off his own tongue. Then the mechanism from the hair knife let him die. The princess looked at Hamilton. It's not a waste, she said. They sealed the fold as Sandals had asked them to, after the sappers had made an inspection. Hamilton left them to it. He regarded his duty as done, and no message came to him to say otherwise. Recklessly, he tried to find Mother Valentine, but she was gone with the rest of the Vatican party, and there weren't even bloodstains left to mark where her feet had trod this evening. He sat at a table and tried to pour himself some champagne, he found that the bottle was empty. His glass was filled by Lord Carney, who sat down next to him. Together they watched as Elizabeth was joyfully reunited with Bertil. They swung each other round and round, oblivious to all around them. Elizabeth's grandmother smiled at them and looked nowhere else. "'We are watching,' said Carney. "'The balance incarnate. Or perhaps they'll incarnate it tonight, as I said.' if only there were an alternative. Hamilton drained his glass. If only, he said, there weren't. And he left before Carney could say anything more.
There you go. That is it. Don't forget, copyright, as I like to say, is Paul's. And if you want, you know, go and have a little read over at of that other story, Copenhagen Interpretation. It's on Paul's site. I'll put a link on the front of the website. What else is happening? Don't forget, drop us a little, you know, if you think we're doing a good show here, drop a little donation in front of the website. That would be fantastic. And if you're interested in that writer's workshop, oh, I've got to tell you that. <laughs> I've got to tell you this. <laughs> but yeah, please, if you're interested in writing, Peter Watts is, you know, I'm doing the writer's online workshop, Peter Watts, Nancy Cress, and Anne Vandermeer are all going to be there as well. So that's one that I'm holding. But I was also holding... If I think I mentioned it maybe last week that uh, a Kickstarter how to how to how to win how to something with your Kickstarter project how to succeed with your Kickstarter project and I don't know what you know I just had this thing idea and actually I spoke to Josh last night and Josh mentioned a great thing because it hasn't been hasn't been selling at all there's a great little story with it at all you know it, it didn't really do very well I was thinking oh I'm just going to knock that on the head it you know it it kind of had since two days ago it had one take up where the the writer's workshop's going great do you know what I mean I'm really pleased with that and if say please come along with that one but this how to succeed on a kickstarter project Josh actually said it's a great It'll be a great kind of thing if we did it. But everyone's kind of thinking, oh, I'd like to do a Kickstarter, but haven't got the idea yet. Do you know, it's one of them things where if you haven't got the idea, you don't need the training course kind of thing. And I thought, oh, that's a, that's a nice way of kind of putting it. But there was one ticket sold for it, you know, and I was thinking, I'm just going to have to knock this one on the head, you know. And then I sent out a, kind of a batch of emails the other day saying about the writer's workshop, you know, come along to the writer's workshop. And... The one guy, Paul, it's you, sir. The one lad that kind of had signed up for this one emailed us back and says, Tony, I think I've signed up to the wrong one. He says, I wanted the kick, the, the writer's workshop. And he says, this is coming back. Kickstarter. Which was the hell's that? So me one guy who was going to go on the event pulled out. So I think that was the kind of, right, knock that one on the head. So that's... How to succeed at Kickstarter didn't succeed at all. But you've got to take these things on the chin. So there you go. <laughs> Just got me tickled pink there as well. Oh, and some fantastic news as well. Our Amy is an Andy. Yes, Amy. <laughs> Actually, Amy's got this great idea what she's going to do for this new little bundle of delight. Little Caitlin Margaret Boone. Yes, Amy, it's Auntie Amy. She's over the moon. Everything, Everyone is doing fine as well on that side. It's, it's Amy's sister who's had the baby. So big congratulations to our Amy. Yes. There you go. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic... Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Judgment. Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of